Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, the podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, today I get the pleasure of speaking with Aniket Day, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History uh, at Harvard University, and already uh, the author of a monograph published by uh, uh, OUP this year called The Boundary of Laughter, Popular Performances Across Borders in South Asia. Aniket, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. It's a real pleasure to be here. So perhaps the first question in the minds of, our, of, of, of many of our listeners is, how is it that you've been published even before your, um, your, 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 your PhD has been, been completed? Could you tell us a bit about where the book project fits into your doctoral research, if they're related or different? Tell us a bit about how they're connected. Right. Yes. I mean, by all means, it, it was not um, uh, something that I had anticipated even when I entered the PhD. Uh, and it was sort of a series of um, accidents and, and attempts that led, it, led to it. Um, it. It really began when I was an undergraduate at Tufts University. And I, I mentioned this at, at length in, in, in the book that it was very much part of my, the intellectual milieu at, at Tufts, uh, which is a wonderful center for South Asian studies. Um, and I, I was then a double major in anthropology and history. And I started off really as an, as an anthropologist in studying um, theater forms in what is now the India-Bangladesh border and led slowly to exploring questions of uh, nation, religion, border making, uh, trying to blend together methods of anthropology and history as well. Um, this is how the, you know, the first draft of it was written as these things often are in, as an undergraduate honors thesis at, at Tufts um, where I worked with major scholars, historians like Aisha Jalal, Brian Hatcher, Chris Manjapra and others. And 
um, it, it, it came out of, out of that very much so. Um, then I, when I went to do my PhD, it was slightly on a, on a somewhat different topic. And initially I had thought of just making an article out of it and, and keeping it that way. Uh, but then I spoke to my professors and, and we thought that uh, this, the, the topic is, is, is interesting. And it's, it's a story that has not been told much. It's not a part of Bengal that is routinely studied. We are not you know, account, accustomed to looking at Bengal this way. And it, it lent itself, so to speak, in a, in a book length work. Um, and so I expanded it. I worked on it a little bit during my first couple of years in the PhD. And uh, guess what? It, it ended up as, as a book manuscript. Um, here. Um, so that's the story of how the book was written. Um, I think as far as the relation with my dissertation topic goes, it's, um, I can talk about that a little, little later when we have spoken about the substance of the book, uh, but it suffices to say that what I have been dealing as a matter of culture here in terms of cultural change and shared cultural spaces, uh, in, in my dissertation, in my current work, I look at a broader uh, angle of understanding shared political spaces across borders in, in much of South Asia, questions of federalism and different political spaces and, and so on. Thank you for indulging the question and congratulations on having birthed the book. Uh, what this tells me is that uh, uh, you will definitely uh, birth the dissertation because all too often or sometimes or um, uh, on occasion, uh, on more occasion than we'd like, we have uh, brilliant, seasoned, bright, uh, <laughs> pedigreed folks who end up ABD because birthing a project of this size is painful uh, and scary and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Insert, insert problematic adjective here. <laughs> and, 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 and so um, this says much, you know, I, I can't help but, you know, the, the, the life coach in me is sort of taking the wheel for a bit, but this is much about the ability to face fears, the ability to manage uh, a, a very large project in, 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 in small bites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so excellent, congratulations. Now, um, what's the book about? Uh, the book, in, in, in its simplest terms, the book is about one performance tradition called Gombira. Uh, this is a very small and localized tradition. Uh, not many people know it, in fact, in the region beyond which it is performed. Um, even in, in, in Kolkata and in Dhaka, I don't think the tradition is as well known as, say, other so-called folk traditions. Um, I found this tradition sort of when I was traveling around Bengal, um, trying to do some field research and surveys elsewhere, I kind of chanced upon it and then slowly kept on visiting the field site, which is Malda and across the border, Rajshahi. And I slowly understood that there is a fascinating history of this tradition uh, that has not been told before. Um, I very consciously chose to write it as a history as opposed to merely an ethnography. The difference, of course, being you follow change over time more seriously and more sustainably in, in history than you often do if you're just studying 
the present. Um, and this was because I saw that it, it had a long history of starting off as an agrarian ritual, then going on to be a form of political theater. And finally, and most interestingly, in my view, after the borders were drawn in 1947, it led parallel lives as, as a so-called Hindu tradition on the Indian side, the theater of Shiva. And uh, not so much a Muslim tradition, but a non-Hindu tradition, if you will, a secular tradition in some senses, where you had a Muslim peasant and his grandson taking the place of Shiva and the peasants on the Pakistan and later Bangladesh regions. And I, I saw this small lens, this, this, um, this history of a very localized, very small form of theater as a wonderful and, and fascinating way of studying sort of the social networks and social spaces that we don't really study, is my experience at least in Bengal. And it also helped me to question at the very least, if not challenge some very paradigmatic ways of looking at, um, uh, looking at the history of Bengal as a history, you know, the history of communalism, so to speak, the history of border making, the history of partition, I thought these smaller histories read in the right way can question some of that. Uh, this, in short, <laughs> is, is what the book is, book is about. It, it traces the history of the ritual, the theater form from the late 19th century to roughly the So this particular performance tradition, uh, for those listening who didn't quite catch it, uh, Gambira, what is its significance? Why is it significant? Um, what does it shed light on? Um, I think, first of all, it, it is interesting because, okay, I should first say that I think, while I will say uh, that it is what's unique and special about it, um, I think the aspect of there being shared performances across cultural and national and religious borders uh, is not altogether unique in, in, in South Asia. And that's kind of one of my points in, in, in the book that um, I have try to develop a methodology studying one tradition, but it can be applied, I think, all over India in, in different ways. That said, I think the unique thing about, about Gombira is the fact that it is a theater that, that starts out as, as an agrarian ritual. Uh, it's 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 part of the many Shaivite uh, theaters and performances around Bengal. Uh, here I must say that the performances of Shiva in Bengal, really the image of Shiva in Bengal is very different from the Puranic uh, Sanskritic image of Shiva as the God we have. The Bengali Shiva is an angry, uh, lazy, uh, sorry, not an angry, a, a lazy, fat peasant who, who's, uh, who, who, you know, goes to, is a henpecked husband, doesn't really like to work, he smokes um, you know, weed, and, and is quite a character in some ways, and is really a very beloved god in, in much of uh, much of the uh, Bengali countryside. His, his, his life is very close to that of the peasants themselves, and, and it, it's a much more of a, of a less hierarchical relationship, I have found, with, with the image of and performances around Shiva. I think that is why the rituals around Shiva have given themselves to talk about social commentaries, political critiques, and all of that. It's, it, it's a vocabulary for people 
people who are, you know, to use uh, the words of the paradigm of James Scott, weapons of the weeks in, in, in some ways to talk about people in power. Uh, but there is more, it, it, it also helps in, in understanding identity formation uh, across political lines. I think the most important thing that I have tried to emphasize in, in studying this tradition is that um, it allows for making a shared cultural space beyond political borders. I think the space of Gombira that we see across the border in some way, in, 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 in some parts of Bengal, not, not all, it shows that you know, older social networks, cultural networks persist. Uh, despite the drawing of borders, and in some ways, it coexists with it, uh, so to speak. I think that's the most important significance of all of this. And would you say then that that overarching theme is the key takeaway, or one of the key takeaways of the book, or otherwise put, without leaving, uh, without offering a leaving question, what would you hope folks would most come away with reading this book? Right, I think absolutely. I think this uh, this is one one major thing I would like readers to come away with. I think the most important thing is to pause and reconsider the relationships, the social lives of Hindus and Muslims in in Bengal. I think there is, uh, you know, I, I hope people who read this book appreciate that. Um, it's a tragedy that I think much of the stories of Hindu-Muslim relations in Bengal has been written primarily, in my understanding, through the lens of conflict. Um, uh, riots, uh, partition, refugees, and so on. Now, I think those things are nonetheless real, and, and there are ways you have to assess them historically. But to consume the social history of these two communities who together constitute a, a country, if you include the both halves of Bengal, it's a huge space. It's, it's, it's as large as France, I, I believe. If, that cannot be consumed on what are at the end of the day isolated incidents of, of conflict. Uh, historically speaking, these conflicts over the 20th century have been punctured and isolated owing to certain factors in certain times. Uh, what remains more important are these sorts of cultural and social and everyday exchanges. Uh, Gombira being one, there are many others, but Gombira offers, I think, a particularly compelling example in its history of Hindus and Muslims uh, performing together, uh, finding a way around conflicts, trying to solve conflicts. The point is not to say that there are no conflicts, it's that people try to solve them. And I, I think that is very clear in, in, in ritual spaces and performances of, of this sort. Um, the other thing I, I, I would like people, you know, like, like readers to, to take away um, is really thinking about Bengal beyond the city of, of uh, Calcutta. I, I mean, this is, it is, <laughs> it has been one of my regular complaints that the study of Bengal often ends up being about a, a very narrow study of certain aristocratic or, or middle classes in, in the city. So I very consciously distanced myself from that. And throughout the book, there are, there's, an, there's a sustained analysis of how concepts of high and low culture folk and non-folk cultures are done 
through mediations between the classes in the cities and intellectuals and even actual performers and peasant performers in, in, in the rural hinterlands. Um, so I think to be more cognizant of that, to understand that um, these folk performers are low caste peasants, Hindu and Muslims, and, and just appreciating their intellect and their, um, their political engagements as political engagements, I think is something worthy of appreciation. Why is the book called The Boundary of Laughter? Um, it was uh, to appreciate one, um, I think that to, to highlight the two key elements in the book. Uh, one is uh, the border making uh, process <laughs> and, and acro crossing boundaries of both religious and national. And laughter, of course, is the medium that, uh, that is crucial to, to Gompira. Um, I, I, I don't want to give it all away, but I think in the end of the book, you will see the, that it's inspired by one of the Gompira songs. They, they, they look at um, the bound border between India and Bangladesh and just say that this is a boundary worthy of laughing and, and it, it's not a real boundary we care about. <laughs> uh, so that's the, other, uh, that's the other small reference uh, there. Uh, but yes, I, I think it's, it's, it's just to push people to think about religious, uh, sorry, national borders um, as uh, to, to think about social histories beyond political and, and social boundaries. How's the book structured? Um, the book is structured in part as a chronological narrative. Um, so there are five chapters. The first one focuses, uh, starts from the 19th century um, and we progressively move. The second one, I think on the early nationalist period in the Swadeshi movement of 1905 to 1914. Um, the third on the interwarriors, the fourth on partition and the fifth on the post-colonial period. So that's a sort of a classic uh, historian's way of periodizing books in different segments. But that's, uh, that's not all. I have in fact tried something slightly different here, which is I juxtapose ethnographic sections with, uh, with historical sections in each chapter. Um, this was a conscious choice uh, because partly it was a way to blend the methodologies because uh, think about it, if, if we are doing just history and anthropology, one way of doing it is you end up concentrating all the anthropological work in the last chapter. Now that does no one any good, I think, it, especially when you're trying to make an argument about the dynamic interactions between past and present, how it lives on and on. Um, that is why you will see each chapter, which are especially in thematics of it, say in, in the second chapter, when I discuss the nationalist, let's say the Swadeshi, I shouldn't really say nationalist in the modern sense. It was the Swadeshi anti-colonial making of, of Gompira as a new tradition. Um, some Calcutta intellectuals played a major role in it. Um, I, 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 I have done extensive archival work on that chapter on, with periodicals, writings, and, and, and so on. But I've also given examples of performers today, how they remember that moment and, and how they think of that heritage, both in in West Bengal and, and Bangladesh. So this is something you will find in, 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 in each chapter. 
Um, but broadly, it's it's a chronological narrative uh, with, with with attention to to the past and the dynamic relation between past and present. The process of uncovering this data or investigating this this tradition was there anything striking or surprising to you? Was it a case of you know most of your hunches confirmed through the empirical data, or was it the case that um, the data took you in a in a direction different? Uh, from the one you had envisioned at the outset? Oh, absolutely. I think it was the latter. There were the, the process of, of research and working on this was full of surprises. Um, you know, when I first began working on it, I was mainly interested in sort of a, let's say, the usual religion and modernity paradigm, right? In the sense of uh, what does the what is the role of the theater of Shiva? in the present day world. This is the kind of question I had gone in with. Um, and then when I began speaking to, to, because first of all, when I first saw performances, the first thing that struck me was uh, that, you know, when, when, you, when you imagine a theater of a religious theater in South Asia, so to speak, you often have presumptions of what kind of things it will be. It will be devotional, for example, or it will be uh, performances of myths. These are stereotypes you have, especially as an undergraduate who's just starting out. But when I first saw Gombira, first uh, what struck me was the political angle. It was a political performance form. Um, and, and while Shiva was uh, very, you know, it was a beloved character and a god, every, that was not the major point of, of the performance at all. And everyone in the region knew this. So that drew me to more of the politics, the political side of it. And then suddenly I discovered the entire angle of the border. Uh, this was quite a surprise because I think, and I mentioned this, whatever secondary literature exists, I believe it's all in Bangla. The only English language work on the tradition was published in 1917 by, by Binoy Kumar Sharkar. And there is a, there is a fascinating story about anti-colonialism and the making of that book. But apart from it, the literature remains entirely in, in, in Bangla, produced mostly from Malda and from Dhaka. Now, the, these are folklorists who have done excellent work in compiling and, and you know, providing descriptions, but they have not really taken an analytical angle especially taking the other side of the border into account. So if you read literature, the Bengali books produced in West Bengal, you would have no idea that Gobira is performed in Bangladesh as well, and, and, and vice versa. So when I was finally able to gather the material and sit back from it, I realized that the most surprising thing here was the connection between the two sides, which puts a completely different angle on how to study these Folk traditions, right? They, these are not sort of remnants from the past stuck in, in one, one corner of, of, of India or, or Bangladesh. These are parts of social lives uh, that, 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 that continue across. So yes, these were some of the surprises that came up in the course of my, my work. Fascinating. Where does this work fit into your current research or, or, or otherwise put, however you like to answer that? Right. No, I, I think this was, this remains a very formative uh, project uh, for, for me. And, and I think this was one reason I thought of, um, of, you know, putting in time and energy to write this book 
separately from my doctoral dissertation. Uh, because I thought, I, I, I think just thinking of one's um, intellectual genealogies is important. And a lot of my insights into borders and social spaces and the ability, say, of um, Hindus and Muslims, bluntly put in South Asia to live together, this was a very organic realization for me that came in the course of researching this book. This is not something that uh, the, the, the scholarship of 20th century India tells us. Um, for many reasons, I think for various reasons, because we have taken partition as an inevitable end or, 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 or whatever, or we have looked back uh, at, at the history of colonial India through lenses after partition. Um, for whatever reason, I think if one builds from the scholarly literature alone, one would not pay enough attention, I think, to this, this sort of, uh, you know, the shared element of social spaces. Um, but this became very clear to me on the course of writing this, uh, th this book. Um, and I was then interested more into questions of federalism federalism in South Asia, federalism not in the constitutional sense in which we, we talk about federalism of, you know, basically narrow and technical relations between center and the states, but federalism as an, as an ethical and political ideology of multiple nations living in one state, right, living together. And this, this sort of calls into question both, you know, questions of religious majoritarianism of, of a country whether India or Pakistan being, being countries of Hindus or Muslims exclusively. Now, there were these ideologies and they remain strong in, in some ways, but I think there was, a, there was and remains a very strong socially grounded um, tradition of what I call federalist thinking, anti-colonial federalist thinking to be precise, which did insist and in fact, in many ways, even you know, implemented and executed possibilities of religious communities transcending differences in some ways. Um, so this is what I, this is now again, I, as I mentioned in the very beginning, the Gombira project is, is a much smaller. Uh, it, it is, I, I defined the boundaries of that project in a small manageable format. In the dissertation, I, 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 I have, you know, have cast a larger net, so to speak, thinking of federalism as a you know, subcontinental ideology, um, thinking of how, and they're you know, picking representative figures from India, from Punjab, from South India, and saying how, how political space, the ability to form shared political spaces between Hindus and Muslims against the colonial order was showing up. And that's what my dissertation is, is, is trying to do. So that's, <laughs> in some ways, how it fits in to, to my sort of so then what subfields uh, might this research impact? Uh, otherwise put, uh, who might most be interested uh, in this work, in this book? Um, I think the book, uh, first and foremost, I think uh, the scholars of Bengal, any of any aspect and uh, scholars of modern Bengal, uh, especially of religious histories. I, I, I think, no, I, I am, you know, there have been, major scholars who have done work on the side of religious studies, I think, who have built on this. I must mention, say, the work of Tony Stewart, 
uh, who, who has worked on, on the early modern period, absolutely foundational work, rethinking the relations between Hindus and Muslims um, from, from a literary angle in, in the early modern period. In the modern period, you have uh, Jean Openshaw's work on, on the Baouls of, of, of Bengal. Again, wonderful study of ethnographic work in, in West Bengal on very similar, similar lines. So I actually have, I come from that tradition of, of, of studying uh, Bengal. Um, and I think, but those works, I, I, I think they have been confined early, mostly to the early modern period or strictly to, to questions of religious studies and anthropology, not so much to history. So I, I think just using some of those insights to rethink the history of modern Bengal, both for historians of West Bengal and Bangladesh, is that's in many ways an immediate audience of, of, of the book. Uh, the secondary audience is, of course, broader scholars of borderlands in, 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 in South Asia. Um, here, um, there is been, I think there's the work of Willem van Schendel and, and others following him, um, studying the, the, the makings of post-colonial borders. Um, I have tried to suggest that uh, it's not enough to pay consider only to say the state actions on borders, policing, military, and so on. That's how when you say borderland, those are the images that comes to people's minds, and that's where this function goes, smuggling and, and other legal aspects of borders. I, I think the, the cultural question is really crucial precisely because uh, language and culture in Bengal, as in elsewhere in South Asia, doesn't really map on directly to, to the scholars, uh, to, to the categories of, uh, you know, nations, national borders. Um, and finally, I think um, there, is an, there is an appeal for both historians and anthropologists to, to juxtapose archival and ethnographic work uh, more uh, more seriously and carefully, um, especially I think folk traditions are often assumed not to have histories, um, and in some cases yes they are rural traditions, but a tradition is made made from very different parts and very different sources, and this is where a historical method really is is useful. So. If you see the book, there are references to the unlikeliest of places where you can find a folk traditions. I'll I'll come back to to Binar Kumar Sharkar, who wrote this, uh, who who's really a you know a character in himself. He was a major anti-colonial figure who who moved all around the world in the, during the First World War, um, and he he was one of the key figures of the anti-colonial movement in India elsewhere but also the man from Malda who helped restructure the performance in, in, in his own village. Uh, this shows, a f and, and you know, the, the, the way he restructured it into new theater form, it continues to this day. So that leaves a lasting legacy to the performance form. This is just one example of how, um, you know, doing broad scale archival work on even so-called low folk traditions can actually reveal a lot. I think methodologically, this might be of some interest. To, to many social sciences. Is it fair to say um, you're issuing a call for the, uh, for the cross-pollination of historical and anthropological methods in general in the field? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, of, of course, I, I, I don't claim that I'm the only one <laughs> saying or, or doing this at all. Historians and anthropologists have, I think, been in conversation for a very long time. And uh, many anthropologists I know also do serious archival research and some historians have started doing some field work as well. Um, I, I think my point is um, to, to think um, more more critically about about this this relationship sometimes anthropologists have a tendency in some anthropological works to take so-called native voices at face value i try not to do that and and and, and i try to sort of historicize their voices and and, and in specific social and political contexts on the other hand historians sometimes have a tendency to just ignore all archives other than some things they define professionally for their own, own, own fields. And this is, and in some ways, being able to write this book uh, without the strictures of, of say, a dissertation or, or, or say, even, an, even a, I, 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 I don't know, professional monograph for, for tenure or whatever, actually allowed me the freedom to, to do this sort of work uh, which i've enjoyed immensely I, I think you know i for instance i could define uh, what, what an archive was based on manuscript sources and and was able to juxtapose history and anthropological methods in a way that might have faced let's say more professional resistance in in in, in certain quarters and that that was one thing that i enjoyed now if you would permit me, I'd like to ask a slightly more personal question. Yes. Nothing scandalous. <laughs> you're, um, I asked this question because um, you're currently uh, in the middle of your PhD or, or near the end of it, somewhere towards the end of it. Do you have a sense of what you might like to do post PhD? What's, what's, what's the dream? Yes, I, I would like to, you know, be teach and 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 do research and remain in the academic uh, field um that's that's the that's the goal uh, hopefully in in a history uh, department if i manage to secure a job <laughs> and 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 then um and, and and then continue with 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 this sort of uh, work that's that's the plan so to speak excellent um there's much to be said about um the job market in humanities and uh, history and religious studies. And of course, that is the conversation for another day. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. All right. The pleasure was mine. For those of you listening, um, we've been speaking with um, Harvard um, history uh, PhD candidate Annika Day on his brand new OUP monograph, The Boundary of Laughter. Until next time, uh, keep well, keep listening, um, and keep contemplating boundaries, uh, however uh, rigid or porous they may be. Take care. <laughs>